Uh, Post-COVID pandemic and in the midst of a cost of living crisis, we face tremendous pressures that impact our mental health. Young people have been particularly affected by disruption to -to day-to-day life over the past couple of years, and with long waiting times to access mental health services in the UK. Celia Litvin, PsychApps co-founder, has developed a platform, an app targeted at Gen Z and millennials. The mental health app space has become a crowded and regulated market in the last couple of years, with only around about 2% proven to actually work. In this podcast, we learn how PsychApps has become the only emotional health game available on the NHS apps library, and how they secured a significant funding round, despite a tricky environment um, for those seeking investment. So uh, thanks very much for uh, for joining us, Celia. And I'm going to go um, straight into uh, to the questions um, that we've uh, that we've prepared for. Um, so the first one is um, yeah, from from a clinical background. What prompted you to move into um, the world of tech, and how important is it to have a clinician um, at the heart of an app like EQ? Um, thank you so much for having me. Um... That is a good question. So I do not have a tech background. I've never had anything to do with tech. It never occurred to me while studying psychology. It practically happened. So I was working for an NHS priory for eating and mood disorders for young adults. And in the first session that you have with these young adults, you do the assessment, which is usually a long session. And it just, it, it just really blew my mind that people had been waiting to have this appointment with myself and my um, uh, co-psychologist for six months, for seven months, sometimes up to eight, nine months, um, and that they were telling us about experiencing the first symptoms three to four years before that even. And I don't know what I was thinking when I was studying psychology, but I just assumed everybody who wanted to see a psychologist would just, you know, ring one up and make an appointment the next week. Um, So I, I was really shocked to hear that there was so little accessibility to um, care and that even if I worked myself to the bone, I wouldn't be able to scratch the surface of the people who actually needed help. And then that they were meeting me years after they would benefit from it the most. And that had we had that conversation that we'd be having over the different sessions and teaching them psychological skills, they wouldn't be sitting there in the first place. They would have been enjoying life and striving over the last three years. And so I was looking at possibilities because I, I felt very frustrated. And I said, I know I, I can't scale myself and I'm not reaching enough people. And I feel like there, there's 10, 20, 100,000 more for every person that I see. So what can we do? And um, this is at the time when um, like all the apps came up where you could order food, you could order Uber, this 2017 um And there was a lot of emerging research that computer-based interventions were as good as face-to-face therapy for a certain population, which is usually like um, digital affine people, younger people, men, things like that. So uh, people like that, audiences like that. So I thought, okay, you know, people are moving from desktop to smartphones and applications. Why don't we just kind of like translate what we've learned for that and turn it into an app? And that's practically the beginning of, of our company developed an application, did a clinical trial, because as part of your question was like, how important is it that a a clinician is part of the core team? 
And as you can see by the stats, only 2% of all the apps are evidence-based, meaning that they have gone through clinical trials and we can prove that they are not just risk-free, but that actually do what they're supposed to do. It is very, very important that there are clinicians part of it. Otherwise, you're going to have a possibly very entertaining app, but you're not going to have an app that does what it's supposed to do, which is help people. Absolutely. So, built the application, did a, a clinical trial, were able to prove that we had effect sizes of a, a beta blocker, which is an antidepressant um, or face-to-face -face therapy, and said, okay, this is the way forward. Um, the only thing that we have to get now is to people to actually interact with that, which is the second biggest problem. I think in the digital tech mental health world, there are two major issues. The first one is evidence-based, and the second one is will people actually use it? Absolutely. Um, and I think, uh, you know, as we'll probably kind of like move on to later as well, I think, um, you know, when it comes to um, people accessing, um, you know, mental health care and maybe one of the, you know, uh, the first people um, that someone sees is, is their GP, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's what options do they have available? And unfortunately, a lot of the time um, that is prescription medica uh, medication, antidepressants, et cetera, yeah. um, especially when you know, potentially someone's feeling so desperate. Um, yeah. I guess the, um, you know, they want to feel like they're doing something. Um, but having this on the NHS apps library gives, gives clinicians that, that option. Um, yeah. and, um, yeah, without having to move to, uh, to, to, to drugs in the first instance. Yeah. And we're also on the EMIS library, which means that, um, GPs can refer EQ via text to their patients. So that, that's on top of that. Absolutely, no, that, that that's great, and and I think one of the things you know um, that we highlighted in the uh, the introduction is you know the, the prevalence of you know unregulated apps, but I think also traditionally um, adherence to uh, to the apps um, has been traditionally um, poor. So, um, how do we foster more engagement um, you know with with those things before more serious intervention is is needed? Because that you know that's what you're trying to do isn't it it's, it's engage with people much earlier on yes so i learned the hard way that engagement is an issue um the, the app that i was just talking about we launched it we had a rather successful start we had lots of users and then uh two weeks in crickets like almost everybody's jumped off so uh i i was saying okay maybe i did a really bad application which is possible because i'm not a techie um but when i went back to the books and i looked at the research and it, it's it's Gotten, it stayed pretty much the same since then. Um, the American Psychology Association says that on average, people spend two minutes on any given mental health application, and then they delete it. it the adherence on two minutes, you cannot learn anything that will you know, um, add value to your life. So I, this is too good an opportunity to just let it go or to you know, keep on pushing applications towards people that um, don't use it. And that adds another threshold because if you've downloaded a mental health app and you say, okay, I have access to mental health, then you use it and you're just like, oh, this is so boring or it's uncomprehensible or it is, you know, um, it's too hard or something like that. Then you think, okay, digital mental health is not for me either, which adds another threshold to mental health care, right? So we were saying, okay, from the core audience that we're interested in and me specifically as a clinician or young adults, let's say anywhere from... 16 to 25, 28. That's kind of like the, the sweet spot for many, many reasons. 
One of them being that if you are to de um, develop anxiety or depression, the symptoms are going to emerge around that time. And that's the latest point where you should be learning these psychological skills so that you don't, you know, go into major depression. Um, and if you look at that population, 70% of them are casual gamers. And there's a lot of emerging research that shows that gaming casually is actually very good for your mental health. And the gaming industry is at least 20 years ahead of behavioral psychology because, you know, they want to make money. So they know exactly how to get people to uh, get engaged and, and, and engrossed and, you know, stick to something and ultimately spend money on a game. So we thought, okay, so this is where our population is. This is what the population does. And there's not anything intrinsically bad in gaming. It is just what you do with it. So if we use that as the vehicle for our intervention, then we can actually get people to stick to it because it is intrinsically motivating. So they might not come back because they want to do self-care, but they will come back because they want to know how the story goes. They want to collect more gems. They want to level up. They want to play the game. And that's exactly what we did. So I think for a very large population, gamifying and not just gamification where, you know, you slap a badge on a CBT exercise, a cognitive behavioral um, psychology exercise, but you actually make it a game and you play the game and then the, the psychology is kind of interwoven into the game. That is the core of keeping people motivated long enough to benefit from um, the treatment. And so far, it seems it seems that we're on the right path because we have five times the retention of any other mental health app that I've come across. Um, and people stick to us uh, on a minimum of five to 12 weeks, which means that is more than enough to um, gain enough participation or to have learned enough psychological skills to have practiced them. And then to know where to come back to if they need more. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, re really good point in terms of, yeah, understanding the, the demographic, you know, mm -hmm. what's work and I suppose applying principles from, um, you know, a, a different industry um, to, uh, yeah, to, to boost engagement. Um, and, you know, so, so in that respect, have you noticed, um, you know, throughout the journey over the last, you know, five years in particular, um, changes to the way that the people are using apps to maintain uh, mental well-being you know in the same way that we use apps for you know, a range of different um you know uh health related uh, and, and fitness goals yes i think the trailblazers practically to open the pathway for digital mental health was practically headspace and calm so they made it mainstream that you would do mental health care meditation you know mindfulness via application and then the, the step from doing mindfulness to prevention or even treatment is then not so far. And I think there are quite a few products out there that have like the backing of the NHS or they're also evidence-based and they have a, a, um, enough PR that people know that it is an option. So people are using them a lot more, which kind of leads back to the problem that if there are more apps out there and people can't distinguish between quality, so they are on an app that they actually enjoy, but there's no evidence behind it, or they are on an app that is evidence-based, but they don't stick to it, it, it makes the market very noisy and very crowded, but also more confusing and less helpful. So, you know, if you're if you're trying to look for something to eat and there's all these things that are plastic food, you can't find the one apple, 
then, you know, it doesn't really help you. No, absolutely. And, and unfortunately that's, you know, you go to, uh, you know, app store or, or whatever, um, AI brings up, um, everything related to the product that you're, you know, searching for. Um, yeah. so like you say, unfortunately it can be, um, a very noisy marketplace. Um, but I think, um, you know, reading about Psycaps and EQ, uh, one of the things that seems to have, um, differentiated you from the competition is being able to, to back the app up with data from, from clinical trials. Um, it's something that I think your, your investors actually, um, you know, commented on, um, yeah, during um, certain press releases. So um, what advice do you have for you know, other startups looking to, to secure funding? So most of the, the, the mental health applications and platforms that I see in the market are from startup founders that have had the need of mental health care, haven't had the tools available for them, and then decided to make them themselves, which I think is a great starting point. Um, because if you're as a consumer that needs aren't met, you know what you're building, right? And it's not like an analytic, uh, an analytical top-down approach. Most psychologists and academic circles are sometimes stuck in a very academic thinking and maybe not as innovative or creative as startup founders. So if you are out there with an idea and you think there is a difference to the millions of other applications that are out there, then go partner up with a clinical psychologist or a psychologist, a cognitive behavioral therapist, um, a university, because people are always looking for product products and there are a sets of skills that people just don't have, right? And don't do it alone because building a product and then shoehorning the psychological aspect into it is going to be harder and more awkward than starting it based empirically and then just proving it and making it evidence-based through clinical trials. So I, I practically made the mistake the other way around that I made it very clinical and then had to figure out how to get people to engage with it because I didn't have those skills. And we're still working on that. Like I think we've just reached the tip of the iceberg of gaming, gamifying EQ like there's so much more we can do. And with this funding, that's exactly what we're going to do. But it shows that the direction is right. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to the point where you realized what the, the gold nuggets are. Yeah. And you can focus on those. Whereas, you know, sometimes it seems that you know, there's a race to, you know, minimum viable product without all of the the, the testing, you know, going on, um, yeah. you know, yeah. beforehand. Um <laughs> A clinical trial is also, it's very, very expensive. It's very cumbersome. It's very frustrating. You know, by the time that you have your ethics approval from a university that you partnered with, because you can't just go and do clinical trials, or you could theoretically, but then you can't publish them if you don't have an ethic committee that has approved and overlooked the process. Um, by the time then, you're, you're already like five iterations at least down the application, right? So um, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's painful, but I think it's a, a strong and important foundation. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, you know, along a, a similar um, line, we're talking about the funding, but um, as I mentioned um, in the introduction, EQ is the only emotional health game available on the NHS apps library. And I think it can be notoriously um, difficult and time-consuming and frustrating to engage with with the NHS um, and, and get something like this to the front of the queue. So, how, how did how did you achieve it? 
Okay, so I have a lot of gray hair now, as you might be able to see. That is just NHS approval. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do it without Orca, which is an app health assessment platform. And we were part of their beta trial in getting us into the NHS app library. And they really held my hand. And despite that, it took it took nine months to get into the app store. And it was very cumbersome. And the NHS at that point, they didn't really know what they were looking for and they were doing. So it was like, it just, it, <laughs> it was messy. Um, I think now it is theoretically easier, but the app library actually closed down two months ago. So there is no NHS app library anymore. So the only thing they do is at, if you're looking at anxiety, for example, if you go down the NHS app library, uh, uh, app, the NHS website, at the very end, they will offer applications that they have tendered. So that they have commercial connections to. So there is no like overarching approved thing, which I find is, is a pity because that is kind of a shortcut has been a shortcut for a lot of people to say, okay, is yeah. this app safe? Is this app, does it do what it say? And if it's, you know, how, how would you know, unless it's gone through clinical trials and then the language is tricky too, because there are apps that say, um, uh, proven. Yeah. And so what do you mean proven? Like there were 10 participants that then clicked. Yes. I felt better after it, or has it actually gone through clinical trials? So if you, if you don't know the, the language around it, it's difficult to choose. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I don't think that's you know very helpful for clinicians getting rid of something that um, makes it far easier for them to be able to um, prescribe to, to patients yeah. in that yeah. manner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't surprise me in, in some respects either. Um, so so I, on, on the, um, you know, uh, staying on the subject of, of research and, and studies, um, you know, it, it's it's obviously been a, a core part of of, of Psychaps, uh, you know, company's aims and and growth. Um, how important is it, you know, as an as ongoing thing in terms of you know analysis and research and, and shaping um, you know the, the product, you know, going going forward? How much of that has 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 to be done, and where does that fit into the you know to the business plan? Well, this is actually quite exciting right now because um, thanks to our investment from Morningside, we now can implement all the, the plans that we had in this regard. And so we are going to move away from classic clinical trials where you do it, you know, you set it up, you do it, you write the paper into what is called micro randomized control trials that are in real time. Once you've hit a threshold of users, you can practically test different features of the game with a uh, a sig significant amount of people, but you don't have to wait for the paper and the setup, everything. It's kind of like pre-set up. And with that, we will be solving a couple of issues. So the first issue is the black box effect. For all the products out there, or most of the products out there, there might have been some changes over the last few months. You know what happens to the, or where the, the patients or the clients or the players are when they come in and you know where they go out but you don't know what happens exactly inside the product. So it's like a black box. They go through it, something happens, and then it comes out. And you have a lot of hypotheses and theories, but you don't know exactly. So with these micro-randomized control trials, we can actually test every single feature. And we can say, okay, so this narrative, this psychological skill, this has this effect on anxiety, on depression, on resilience, right? So we can go back and say, okay, so like um, catastrophization, 
um, is a lot stronger than generalization on the effect side. So we're going to move it forward uh, by, by two weeks. Um, and then this skill doesn't help at all. So we're going to chuck it and we're going to try another skill. And we keep on making the game more and more efficient. And so we've reached the highest possible effect size. And when I say effect size, there are practically in clinical trials, there are two golden stats. The first one is significance. And that just means, can we outrule chance that the effect was maybe because the sun was shining that day or like um, half of the people who are participating in the trial won the lottery or something like that. We can outrule chance. So that's significant. And then once we have significance, we say, okay, how big was the effect? And the bigger the effect size, the better it is for the people, but also the more they will feel the benefits. Because, you know, sometimes you can make a difference in anxiety or depression and the people will still feel really bad. But if you the effect size higher, then they can feel themselves getting better and that will fuel hope, positivity, motivation, and then, you know, that feeds into the rest of it. So that's what we're going to be doing um, over time. So um, I've just hired um, a clinician from uh, Dalhousie University and the Resilience Research Center to come and join us and help us on that track. And that will be fueled by machine learning. So we have like two parallel tracks. One will be to continuously update our clinical effectiveness. And the second part will be to constantly approve the, the stickiness, engagement, the storytelling uh, in, in parallel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a really good point, you know, um, in, in relation to, to chance, because in, in any kind of, you know, medical treatment, like you say, there can be variables and factors yeah. um, influencing um, maybe the improvement in a condition when, yeah. you know, someone has an app and they are yeah. you know, not necessarily even in dialogue with the clinician. It's like, okay, was yeah. that something that's in the app? Was it something that's environmental? Yeah. So. I yeah. can promise you that any clinical trial that was with about anxiety and depression on the day of the queen's death will have significantly dropped or raised, depending on what you're, you're um, measuring over time. And that is connected to the death of the queen. Now, if we wouldn't have two or three subgroups that we'd be matching with each other, we would say, oh, you know, the app actually made people more depressed or more anxious because this is the day we, we've measured it. So that's why it's important to have multiple groups in your clinical trials. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a really, really good point. Um, and you know, going forward, um, you know, do you see apps and, and, and platforms you know, like EQ being the first port of call for those that are seeking um, help with, with medical conditions? Um, or, you know, do you think it's a multifaceted approach where someone needs to be using an app, you know, with a GP or with another um, medical professional? Um, I think both is possible. So um, I don't really like to say this because it's con a contra, um, it, it doesn't sound right. So I like to think that apps like mine, which are on the lower end of mental health spectrum, so it's personal growth prevention and early intervention so that area is like an entry drug to treatment so for a lot of people that have access to mental health care but wouldn't do it because they either think okay feeling this miserable is normal or there's still stigma attached to it or you know they just you know aren't motivated to do anything about it that that will help them enter the system and get the care that you know they need that the app can't provide at this point um, 
I have hundreds and hundreds of clinicians that are using AQ alongside therapy and they refer to it and discuss the, the um, skills that are learned in the game. And I think that's amazing. Of course, that's going to be a huge boost. Um, and we also triage into the NHS and into private healthcare um, from the app if someone is flagged as high depression, high anxiety. So um, I, I think it's an all around approach. And then after you've stopped therapy, a lot of people feel very lost because they lost this connection. They lost the, you know, the exercises. So to have something that kind of wraps up. So I think it, it's really a mix and match and it can be very deeply personalized. And, you know, everybody can put a suite of tools together with like an exercise application, a prevention application, and then maybe a meditation application to with you know group therapy or private therapy so it's it's absolutely mix and match and i'd, I'd love to see people have as much health care as they can have time and money for yeah and and the fact of the matter is that um you know access is um you know uh terrible um in the yeah. uh, you know the, the uk um yeah. you know yeah. waiting lists for you know calms uh, psychiatrists yeah. etc um are yeah. I, I just insane it's one of the you know um yeah, I read something. It's like, you know, if you had a broken leg, you know, you wouldn't be working, yeah. you know, waiting six, nine months, 12 months, you know, no. longer uh, for, for yeah. treatment. Um, no, so no. something needs to happen earlier on in, in, in that journey. And, and this gives um, people that, that option. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's atrocious. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, that's great. Um, so, um, you know, what's been the, the biggest challenge you faced um, so far in your startup um, journey? Because, I mean, I think when you get to you know, this stage and you've secu you know, secured funding, you can be very philosophical and go, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't have changed the thing because, you know, um, everything has led to this moment and, you know, the butterfly effect, if that thing yeah. had happened, then this would have happened anyway. But, you know, there's always, you know, um, hindsight's twenty twenty. Is Is there anything you would have, have done differently that you can pass on to others that, um, you know, with in similar situations that are in startup businesses and they want to get to where, where you've got to? Well, first of all, wake up at five o'clock, drink water with a um, lemon and then meditate for an hour, jog for two hours. <laughs> no, um, I think would I make, so if, if I were ever to exit this company and after I've taken a sabbatical and just like, you know, napped and read books <laughs> for half a year, then I know that the starts I would do would be vastly different. But that is because of the knowledge that I've acquired along the way. As a clinical psychologist, you do not have the business knowledge uh, to set up a startup and to run it efficiently. Um, and it's very hard to acquire all the knowledge needed to do it properly. So you know how they say female, uh, not female, single founders, you know, it's, it's not good to invest in them. I think a, a serial entrepreneur who has done multiple product projects by themselves uh, successfully or more or less successfully probably could do that because they know what they're doing until they get enough money to hire the people then to take over as specialists. Right. But if you're the first time single founder and there's just skills you don't know. Find find a partner. Try to go to one of those accelerators or incubators. Emerge yourself into the ecosystem. Make contacts. Find your team because it just speeds things up because you're not going to go down routes that 
make no sense for your business because you simply don't know better. I remember one of my very first pitches, I was trying to um, get the, the friends, family and fools around. And I was talking to this investor and he said, so how much traction do you ha have? And I said, what is traction? <laughs> and he was just like disgusted. He's like, be gone. <laughs> and you know, these are just things like uh, now I would be able to answer that in a second. Right. But it, it, you just don't know what you don't know. So yeah. don't try to do this by yourself Emerge yourself into um, the, the ecosystem. And I think the second thing which Techstars kind of taught me is have your business plan first and build the product to carry that business plan. You can always pivot, but if you have a very good product, but you don't know how to make money with it, you won't be able to secure funding, right? So it, it needs to have a solid business plan and it, especially with a product where you're trying to help people or, you know, you're trying to clean up the world or be sustainable or something. It feels very unauthentic to look at the money all the time. But, you know, if you have enough money, then you can make it cheaper and you can make it bigger and you can make it more accessible. So it, it's, it's worth it. You can, you have compassionate capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think too, a good practical piece of advice you know surrounding yourself with you know the right people and yeah. um, people that can fill in the gaps that you you know can't you can't possess them all you know yeah. um, no. you're only one person uh, and, and then a you know a, a proper a proper business plan as, yeah. as well um, yes I, I think that's you know in terms of um immersing yourself within the ecosystem i think that's something that um female founders have, have been proven to do really successfully yeah. um you know in terms of the uh, the groups female founders will know everyone else's name, you know, particularly uh, other females, um, males, not, not so good at it. Um, so I think that's also something to, to bear in mind as well um, for those that perhaps aren't surrounding themselves with the right people or, or getting involved because there, there is advice that, that can be dispensed. You can learn from, from other people's journeys. Um, so yeah, re really good advice. Uh, and thanks so much for, you know, um, sharing uh, your, your journey. Um, giving us some some background on on EQ, um, I'm, I'm sure our kind of demographic are going to be really interested to uh, to listen to uh, to the podcast. So, um, thank you very much, and best of luck with the the next uh, part of the uh, the journey. Also, thank you so much. Now, now it gets really interesting. If we have a conversation in that again in a year, I will have a lot of new and exciting things to share. Yeah, exactly. No, that'd be awesome. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank Take you. Care. See you later. Bye.